And it's so good to be back in Nebraska again. And I want to give the best congratulations to the Cornhusker for their 20 years. I am just really thrilled. I didn't realize we all started about the same time. <laughs> and I'd especially like to thank uh, Dick and Peggy. Uh, they have uh, brought this thing together. They've kept it going. And not only that, they have encouraged speakers uh, from all over the country and, and brought them here and given them an opportunity to share. And they have given me the opportunity over the years to, to do things that I never thought I could do and, and to stretch myself and to grow and, and to, to learn about the program in a way I've never learned before. And I'm very, very grateful for them being here. Y'all are very blessed to have them here. Well, my name is Mary Pearl, and I'm an Alnon who's happy, joyous, and free. Oh, it is exciting here today. <laughs> I hope that it'll be as exciting when we're through. <laughs> when Dick called me and he said, we want you to come back, and I said, yes, yes, yes! And he said, well, you didn't even let me give you the dates. I said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I said, I have always loved coming to Nebraska. Y'all are uh, enthusiastic in the fellowship here. And, and I love the enthusiasm in the program. And I love people who love working the steps. And I love people who are willing to, to try different things and what have you. And so he, he said, uh, well, what would you like to do? Something dicey? And I said, I'm too old for sex, Dick. <laughs> And I said, uh, well, what would you have in mind? He said, well, what would you like to do? And I said, oh, I think I could probably just go crazy and talk about the big book. And he said, really? I like that. And I went, oh, God, what have I said? <laughs> a little terrified feeling came on the inside. You know, in a lot of places it's um, uh, not popular for an Alnon to mention the big book, much less read the big book, say the big book, or use the big book. But I haven't really cared about that ever in my life. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm an Arkansas rebel. What can I say? <laughs> you know, just don't, when you tell me I can't do something, I have an insatiable need to do it. I don't know why. I guess that's just one of those defects. But I want to emphasize today that I'm here to share my experience, strength, and hope. And, and I have been raised on the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And for me to get up and to share and not mention the Big Book would, just, just wouldn't be right, you know. Because that, you know, we're asked to share how we did it. And if you think about it, you know, um, when Al-Anon started, uh, there was some stuff that was written in that book 13 years before Al-Anon ever came to pass, you know. And uh, so obviously they were thinking about us at the time. But what I want to do is I want to tell you how I learned to make the big book mine. I'm not an authority on the big book, but I do know how the big book works for me. And that's what I want to share, making that book yours, just like anything else. Now, this doesn't mean that I don't read and study and practice the Al-Anon program and, and the literature. We have some really good literature in Al-Anon, but the big book enhanced my program to a dimension. It just, it just made it all come alive for me because, you know, when I came in the, to the rooms of Al-Anon, we were not a bunch of happy campers. You didn't hear much laughter in the rooms of Al-Anon. We were sort of stuck with our hands to our head. And, um, 
over there doing woe is me, woe is me. And what attracted me to the program uh, was the fact that I got to go to open AA meetings because that's where you heard the laughter. And for God's sake, we love alcoholics. That's why we're here. Now, in our own Al-Anon preamble, it says that we learn to give love and encouragement and understanding to the alcoholic. And how better do you understand the alcoholic than to study the book that is written about alcoholism? And we are taught in Al-Anon, alcoholism is a family disease. If so, then I need to know everything there is to know about alcoholism because that's my disease too. Now, I know uh, J.D. got cancer. And uh, I read everything I could on cancer. I wanted to know everything. How do we fight this disease? How do we how do we get past this point? You know, and it's the same thing with me and alcoholism. Um, like I say, I love the part in the book where it says, uh, "When I found God, I found myself," and that's true. You know, I I didn't have a clue about those things, and that's some of the things I want to share with you is how I use that. Uh, I got my first big book, which I still have here, and I got it 20 years ago. And J.D. gave it to me. He gave it to me for my birthday in 1977. And, and he said, here, I'm tired of not being able to find mine when I want it. <laughs> you know, I just couldn't understand in the beginning why we need to have everybody have their own book on stuff. You know, if you had one book in the house, why would you have to have? And then he didn't like because I wrote in his book, you know. And, um, and I circled things, but I was doing that so that he wouldn't miss it, you know. <laughs> I've often heard if you want to hide something from an alcoholic, put it in his big book. <laughs> the thing about the big book was, uh, the first time I read it, I'm going to be honest with you, I saw everything that he needed to do, and I was learning about him. But as I continued to read and study the book over the years, all of a sudden, a real miraculous thing happened. I found me on the pages of that book. I found me. Um, my home group has a big book study meeting every Monday night at 6.30. Uh, so if you're ever down Arkansas Way in North Little Rock, well, you're more than welcome to come and uh, join us. It could be very enlightening. Now, I get tickled at the alcoholics who come to the al big book study, and they say, we never thought about it that way. You know, we never thought about it. We just... We've done it ours, but uh, what's also funny, too, is it really scares them when they find out how many Al-Anons know about the big book. <laughs> well, we started that meeting in January of 1989, and it's helped us tremendously to understand how the disease affects the family, how it's affected our lives, because it is a family disease. Now, in our Al-Anon ODET book on July 21st, it says there are no rules and regulations, no management, control, nobody says you must do this or you may not do that. It's a government by principles, and what binds us together is a common problem solved by understanding and mutual service. And I feel that our problem is alcoholism here. And so there, that right there tells me it's okay to get my help where I can get it. Uh, most people I find who are against Al-Anon's uh, reading and studying the big book are those who have never done that. They don't have a clue what's in there. You know, it's like, I'm scared, but don't go in there. You know, it's well. We we always fear that that we know nothing about. You know, it's just like change. When you say change, so you don't know what's going to happen when you do that, and so you get afraid. And I think that's it. But I love the book when it says it talks about there's a principle which uh, a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance, which is contempt prior to investigation. You know. 
And I think that's, that happens to a lot of people. They're afraid to look in something. They're afraid what they might find. But the big book to me is like sort of going to life 101, you know. I miss that somewhere. I don't know about y'all, but, you know, when I was going to school, they didn't tell you how to live. You learned how to read, write, and do some arithmetic, but they did not tell me how to do relationships. They didn't tell me how to live in this world. They didn't say how to live life on life's terms, and I didn't have a clue. Now, a lot of my friends in AA will tell you that uh, I'm just a six-pack short of being an alcoholic myself. (laughs) Well, I'm here as living proof that I am not an alcoholic um, because I take the alcoholic test every three years. I take a drink and then put it down and see if I have a problem with it. Now, to explain to you, I, we were having a business meeting in our group here just uh, back in May. We were having our quarterly business meeting, and I was uh, while they were having their meeting, I told them, I'm going to be on a jet going to Hawaii, and while y'all are sitting here fighting out the World War III, I'm going to be sipping a chi-chi on my lanai. Yeah. <laughs> Two weeks after I was in Hawaii, it occurred to me I had forgotten to get my drink. (laughs) Now, if that doesn't prove I'm not an alcoholic, I don't know what is. (laughs) But I will tell you this. As soon as I remembered I had forgotten, I called and got one. And then I forgot to have another one before I left. You know... (laughs) You know, I enjoyed it while it was, but you know, it's real funny. You know, the alcoholic doesn't realize that with the real Al-Anon, you know, we are strangely insane when it comes to alcoholics, not just to the alcohol, you know. Uh, we're, like I say, we're told it's a family disease and we've been affected by someone else's drinking. And uh, I can tell you that I was not affected by anyone's drinking in my immediate family, but my mother was raised in it. And let me tell you, if you're ever affected by an Al-Anon, you have a much greater problem than if you were <laughs> affected. Well, there is no known reason for the neuroses, for God's sake. You know, you just know that you've got someone that ought to be a, a card-carrying certifiable nutcase that's out there functioning, you know. And you don't have a clue, but you see, that's how the disease continues on from person to person. And, you know, when I worked with the Elatine kids, I was so amazed to find out that their biggest resentments were not with the practicing alcoholic, but it was with the dingy Elanon, you know. I understand he's drunk and he does that when he's drunk, but what's the matter with her? And I'm looking and I don't know. You know. <laughs> and I'd say, I never had kids, so see, I am not responsible for one adult child. I'm here to tell you. You know, I don't have an allergy to alcohol. I don't have that allergy to alcohol. But um, I do have an obsession. You know, I mean, I can obsess on anything. If I think about it three times, I'm probably obsessing. You know, because I never do anything a little bit. You know, do it till you die on the spot. My God, you know. And so some of my favorites were excitement, attention, being needed. These were my obsessions. You know, I wanted to be loved. It seemed to me all my life I went everywhere just saying, all I want is just love me, love me, you son of a bitch, love me. (laughs) You know, it's hard to love people when they're talking to you like that. You know, I'm going to make you prove your love. And they say alcoholism is cunning, baffling, and powerful. <laughs> I believe it, but more than that, the alcoholic is cunning, baffling, and powerful, you know. On one side, you've got a, the allergy to drink, and you've got an obsession to drink it, you know. 
Well, then Alan, on you got an obsession to manage and control another human being, you know. Namely, the alcoholic, you know. We seem to be obsessed with that person drinking, you know, and we believe that the problem is alcohol. And pretty soon we begin to, to really both of us think that the problem is alcohol. But the problem isn't alcohol. And that's what I learned in the book. The problem is alcoholism. It doesn't become alcoholism, you know. Somebody sobers up. You think sobriety is the end of it all. I mean, we have reached our goal, and it's not. You know, it's just one of the things. It's a symptom of a disease. Alcohol is only the symptom, you know. And the book tells you that, you know. And it doesn't, what's amazing to me is, do you know a lot of people out there think the big book is designed to get an alcoholic sober? And that's not what the book says. The book says that it's there to help you to find a power within yourself, a higher power that'll help you to learn how to live so you don't have to drink. You know, it's not just about getting an alcoholic sober. And so it stresses that need of a higher power if we're going to overcome and recreate our lives. And God knows, haven't we all wanted to recreate our lives? How many times did you say, I want to start over? I wish I could have overs. You know, as a kid playing jacks, you know, you throw a rotten hand, you yell overs. And I wanted to do that all my life. And it didn't seem like I'd do any different, you know, until I got here and found out how to do overs. You know, you can start your life over again here. It's not like it used to be. And I also learned that a person has to make their own diagnosis, you know. I was always a person that, uh, in fact, in my home group, uh, every time we got somebody in that ended up over in AA, you know, uh, I got the sponsor for some reason. And I said, God, am I in charge of diagnosis and referrals? I'm, <laughs> you know, what is this deal? What's going on? What's going on? And the thing about it is, no, we each have to diagnose it's our own problem. And that's just like, we get lots of people who come into Al-Anon that think the problem is someone else. And, and they leave. And if they live, we'll get them back, you know. Because the thing about it is, the problem is not somebody else. The problem is me. When I'm looking in the mirror, I'm looking at the problem. And uh, I didn't know that. I, I always thought it was somebody out there, you know. And I had to control. And, you know, an alcoholic needs to control their environment to be comfortable. Well, what does an Elanon do? If we don't try to control another person to control our environment, you know. And that's the fearful nature of the disease, you know, that self-centered fear. And everyone around it is affected by the disease, you know. And I, I, can't, I my thing was I kept trying to get it all together, you know. And I would tell J.D., if you just straighten up and do right, you know. And I can remember one night in particular, uh, my sister... Um, <laughs> God love my sister. She bought J.D. a wine-making kit for Christmas one year. I was not amused. <laughs> and it's like, but you see, I can't tell her she can't buy a wine-making kit because I'm trying to hide from the family the fact that he's drinking. So therefore, I have to go, oh, look, J.D., you have a wine-making kit. And he's going, yeah. Well, I read the instructions, and I knew he didn't have a prayer because it talked about an aging process of a year. <laughs> Even the people who make it know there's a year time limit. See, they know, they know. And uh, so one night we were going to this uh, friend of mine. She was pregnant and having a, um, a little shower. And so all the guys were going to stay at her house, and all the girls were going over to the girls' house where we were having the party. And um, we lived in Jacksonville, and this uh, was in a west, southwest Little Rock home, so it was quite a distance away. And uh, so when I was taking my shower, I came out, and J.D. was sitting with what looked to be like an ice uh, tea glass, which is a, a big glass in the south. We don't serve them little dinky things. We use big ones. 
And uh, I said, what you drinking? Because that was always very curious about that. And he said, uh, great Kool-Aid. And I said, oh, okay. And so he, when we got ready to go, he said, why don't you drive? I'm tired. And I said, okay. That should have been another uh, signal to me. But I, I was focusing on this uh, shower. And uh, so as we're driving along, all of a sudden, he just went down in the floorboard. I mean... He just sort of poured out of the seat and went down in the floorboard. And I'm looking at him and I said, You're down! And he said, Hooray! And I said, Well, now you straighten up! And so he just stepped, you know, he said, I'm straight. I said, You get it together! You're gonna, I don't have time to take you back home. You've got to get it together! And so JD said, I was wrong! Now, if I'd have had any sense at all, I would have gone back home, you know. But no, you see, I'm on a quest. So I go on, and when we get there, I told him, I said, now, when you get out of this truck, do you, you do not wobble. You do not stagger. You are going to straighten up. And he said, okay. And he got out, and he did a double flip right into a cactus bed. <laughs> so the guy spent the rest of the evening picking the cactus out of J.D., I came back from the shower, and they're saying, take this person. And I'm going, what's the matter? And they were trying to play poker, and half of his cards were facing the wrong direction. <laughs> now, he was with a bunch of would-be Al-Anons, because they're all trying to fix him, you know. <laughs> and they're pretty disgusted with him. But that was the kind of way things were at our house, you know, trying to get it together, trying to keep the illusion that everything's okay, you know. And when I read that big book, like I say, that first time, God, I knew he was on the pages of that book, you know. And I could identify where he needed stuff. But it was when I began to make an identification, when I began to identify with the problems, then there was hope for me. Because if I can identify with the problems, I'll identify with the solution. And, it, you know, it just took a while to be able to sell that. Saw that, see that. Uh, I saw the progression of the disease in, in myself. From the time that I was a little girl, I could see that all along my entire life that I'd had patterns repeated over and over and over with different people, different places, but the same thing was happening, you know. And all during this period of time, I knew, I knew, this doesn't work. But somehow or another, I would go back and do that again and again and again. See, self-knowledge really doesn't help you much. And I, I kept thinking that it would. You know, if you knew that wouldn't work, then why do you do it again? I don't know. It's called an obsession. And it's like the, the bottom line is I know it doesn't work, but in lieu of having a different way, I'll go back and do the known every darn time. You know, it's like something has got to be put in there because my mind will say, this time it's going to be different. And it's not different till I'm different, until something happens. Now, I heard my first Al-Anon speaker was Ramona from Oklahoma. God, I love that woman. And when she would talk about her God, she'd say, I would give you my God, but I would rob you of the joy of finding your own. And I'd say, that's okay, that's okay, I don't mind. Rob me, rob me. You know, it's like she had such a faith. And when she would take to the podium, there was a glow that happened with that woman. And, and I wanted what she had, you know. And I'd say, give me your God, give me your God. Because, see, I'd been really close-minded about God's stuff all my life. Because, like say, when I was 12 years old and my daddy died, uh, I had been told that God loved me. And I could not believe that God loved me because if he did, why did daddy die? Why did daddy die? And a 12-year-old child doesn't know how to communicate what she's thinking and what she's feeling to you. I, I needed help then. 
you know, and I needed help all my life, but help wasn't there for me because I couldn't reach out and get help. Because I was told you can do anything you want to do if you just set your mind to it. Well, now, that'll kill you. I'm not here to tell you. That'll kill you. Um, I quit going to church. Um, my mother changed churches after my father died because of her fear of driving. Uh, she, uh, the, the church that we went to was on the other side of Little Rock, and we lived in East North Little Rock. And uh, she was afraid, and so we uh, went from a very uh, church that talked about a very loving God to um, Hard Shell Baptist Church. Now I'm not knocking Baptists; I'm just sharing experience here. And they and they had all these little rules and stuff there, and I knew I was guilty. You know, I mean, they were telling you you were guilty if you thought about stuff, and and uh, I was thinking, you know, I'm, a, <laughs> you know. And so, I, I, you know, if you're, you're, if you do think about it, you might as well have done it. And so, I mean, you're gone already. I mean, you're condemned. And so I figured, well, I was going to go to hell anyway, so what the heck, I was going to have some fun before I went. Because it seemed to me that the people who were having fun were doing things that were not along those lines. And then a couple of times during the active drinking, J.D. would get this, uh, he'd say, let's, let's start going back to church. It's like intuitively he knew something was wrong spiritually. And I didn't really want to go, but if it would help him to keep from drinking, then I would go. I'd do just about anything to keep him from drinking. You know, that, you know that's how we are. Uh, but I always felt out of place, and then something would happen that would push me away. Uh, we started going uh, to church when we were dating. And, um, and sometimes J.D. would stay over at the house you know, overnight and this kind of thing. Well, you know, when you live in a little <laughs> southern town... There's a lot of gossip that goes on, and, and all of a sudden one day we got a delegation of the sweet little old ladies from the Baptist church telling us they didn't want us in their church anymore because we were living in sin. And uh, I was the kind of person who was dangerous because I knew just enough about the Bible to be able to, to quote it back, and I said, I think all have sin and come, you know. And I'm saying, if you don't have sinners in your church, you ain't going to have nobody on Sunday. And, you know... <laughs> And, you know, I didn't want to be one of them, but, by God, it hurt to be rejected by them. I'm telling you, that hurt. And so I said, I'll never go back. And it's like every time something like that happened, I gave God credit for it instead of the people. In other words, God didn't want me there, and that's the reason he sent those nasty little old women from that Baptist church. And so then later, J.D. decided, he said, well, we'll change. We'll go to a Methodist church. And I said, I've never been in one of those. So we went, and, and uh, uh, I went that morning uh, to the Sunday service, and I had on a, a beautiful black gabardine suit. It was a long pants suit and a, and a three-piece. It was very, very pretty. I wore it to work all the time, and I was stopped at the front door of the church and said, you can't come in here wearing pants. And I said, now, if you want to come Sunday night, you can come Sunday night. And I said, well, what's the difference between Sunday morning God and the Sunday night God that you can roll one in and you can take one out? I said, I don't understand what difference it makes. And they said, well, you can't come in here. So one more time, I felt pushed away from God. I felt pushed away from God by man's laws was what it was. Uh, and, but those old ideas had to be defeated now before I was going to be able to, to make a surrender here. You know, you get such a block here between you and those kind of things that when people say God, automatically I thought of religion. I didn't think about a spiritual God. I didn't think about my Creator God. I thought about that God that was saying, I don't want you in my church. I don't want you here anymore. That was what I had. Now, like I say, surrender's hard for me. I don't know about y'all, but it doesn't make any difference what it is. Surrender's hard for me, you know. But you have to accept things, and you have to surrender. And uh, the process continues for me even today. I mean, I've had an ongoing thing now for three years. I've had this situation with a cat. 
Now, I got jumped on by my sister's cat was a Siamese, and I had to have 16 stitches taken when I was about eight or nine years old, so I'm not real thrilled about the little kitty cats. <laughs> you know? It's like I don't trust them. They come up and, and sort of curve around your leg. I think he's getting ready to nail me, you know? It's like, get this thing off of me. And have you ever noticed when they get on you, they want to go, ee, 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 ee? What is it with those crazy things? You know, I don't know. But I'm not one of those likes to run around with claw marks all in my body. Now, you may be a cat person, and that's fine, but I'm a dog person. And I think dogs should eat cats. I mean, that's just the way it is. <laughs> well, and like I say, and I have confirmation on this. Now, three years ago, I had this desire, and I made me a beautiful, beautiful front flower bed. And, I mean, it's a long thing, and it's a free form, and I got these New Mexico uh, River rocks to outline it, and they're just gorgeous. I mean, it's beautiful, and I had these impatience, and I don't know, you know, you shouldn't really plant something called impatience anyway. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm out there, and I'm watering them with my miracle grow. You know, I'm going to be one of those people they put on TV say, where'd you get them 25-foot-tall impatience? Well, I use miracle grow. <laughs> But anyway, they're about four foot tall out there, and people are stopping when they go by. They're, they're, they're amazed, you know, and it's just all this profusion of all different colors, and they're just absolutely fantastic, and I'm so proud. Oh, God, I'm so proud. I did that. I did that. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I come home one day, and there's a hole in the middle of my impatience. And I mean, impatience are little tender plants, and if, you, if something lays down on them, it breaks them off even with the ground. And I had a cat in my yard. Now, my dog kills squirrels, he kills birds, he kills possums, he kills raccoons. My dog kills anything. He's in the backyard. And this is happening in the front yard. And so I called everybody and I said, how do you keep the cat out of your flower bed? And they said, well, he's attracted to the bird feeder. And so therefore, oh, that's wonderful. You come home one day and he's got one of your baby birds in his mouth. You are really thrilled about cat now. And so it began the, the war of who's going to win in the yard, me or the cat. And some people said, put mothballs. And so I put out mothballs, 10 pounds of mothballs out there. Now, the place stunk to high heaven, but it didn't bother the cat. People said, put cracked cayenne pepper out there, you know. And so I got two of them great big things from Sam's. And I mean, I had everything. I mean, I couldn't even walk across my yard barefooted without burning by my feet. It didn't bother the cat. People said, well, spray him with water. Spray him with water. Didn't bother with the cat. So then I got my uh, uh, pellet gun. And so I pumped it up and uh, I shot the cat. And he would go, meow, but he would come back. This must be an owl cat. I mean, he just, you couldn't get rid of him, you know. He might have been an alcoholic cat. You know, I always said alcoholics, people worry about if they do this, they'll leave. <laughs> alcoholics are hard to get rid of and the booger off your finger. You just can't do it. And that's the way this cat was. I couldn't get rid of this damn cat. And so I pumped it up to about six times and when I hit him more, I mean, he let out a scream, but he came back. So I pumped it up to ten and I missed him and shot a hole in the neighbor's house. <laughs> J.D. said, put the gun down. Put the gun down. So I put the gun down. And so this year, the new plan was, I heard another Al-Anon, she said, buy those cheap little plastic forks that are real picky, and then plant them in around the flowers when you first put the flowers in, and where the points are up, and then the cat can't walk on them. He likes to walk on the flowers, not the little pickies. It didn't bother him at all. 
Now, this cat is huge. He's a great big long-haired calico-looking thing, and he's huge. And so we tried the animal traps. He just sprays them and goes on. He doesn't care, you know, and, I, and it was just like, I just, I just couldn't. I said, all right, I've got it. <laughs> Smith and Wesson. Um, I've got a 38. I'm just going to blow that cat to kingdom come. I'm tired of messing with him now. Three years I've had with the cat. I don't want the cat. And he's eating my squirrels. He's eating my, my baby uh, birds, you know, and I'm really sick and tired of this cat. And so I was writing to a friend of mine, and he said, oh, you don't want to do that. And I said, what do you mean I don't want to do that? He said, well, I killed a dog one time, and the first shot I didn't kill him, and he screamed, and he screamed. And he says, I can hear those screams till today, and thank you so much for sharing. <laughs> so now I have the horror, if I kill the cat, I won't kill the cat. And then he'll just lay out there, flip and scream, and I don't want it that. I just don't want that. So I said, all right, I it. I surrender. I'll accept the cat. By God, it's my cat. It's my yard cat. I love that son of a bitch. So I went out there and I said, Welcome home, cat. And I said, I'm going to call you FC. So FC lays there and he goes, Meow. The next morning, I'm standing there in my living room, and I'm looking out the window, and one of my happy squirrels has got a limb on my bonsai tree, and he's gnawing on it. I couldn't believe it. My Japanese bonsai! He's gnawing on my tree! I went screaming out into my front yard, stomping my feet. Let go of my tree! Let go of my tree! Five squirrels just going crazy every which way. And I'm going, where the hell is my cat? That eats the squirrel. Where is the cat? He's not been back. I asked the girl that stays at my house when I'm gone last night. I said, Is the cat back home? She said, Haven't seen. The minute I accepted that cat, he went away. And you know, the funny part about that is, I know that is a principle. Whenever you accept something, when you surrender and accept it, it goes away. And it just never occurred to me that it worked on a cat. But now the really funny part of that story is, while I'm out there standing, screaming, yelling, where is my cat? There's people going by my house that are going... You see, I'm out there in my panties and bra. Twenty years in Al-Anon, and I'm standing in my front yard in my underwear. We've come full circle. <laughs> well, the book does some basic things for me. It defines my problem. It tells me I'm powerless. It defines my solution, that I don't have the power to do it. And it tells me how to bring about the solution. You know, all of that's outlined, and it tells me that the solution is in working the 12-step method of recovery, as outlined in the book. You know, it's amazing to me. We used to say in our preamble, we work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. They change stuff from time to time. Uh, and, and that was the thing, you know. But recovery begins when I'm willing to make a commitment to doing something different. When I'm ready to get a sponsor, when I'm ready to do the meetings, and most importantly, when I'm ready to do what I'm told to do without belly aching, questioning, and balking about it. That's when my recovery. 
you know, and it also, I get a lot of recovery when I share my experience, strength, and hope with other people. That helps me too. But the program is not for people who need it. It's one more time for people who want it. And see, I found that I have this disease, this disease, and the disease is a condition which separates people, you know, and we become isolated. And Ellen and I, we talk about suffering the loneliness of loneliness. We feel like we're the only people in the world that feel the way we do. And, uh, you know, when I would hear the alcoholics talk about how isolated they feel, I thought, God, I know what that feeling's like. I know what that feeling is to have a hole in the middle of you with the wind blowing through. Uh, and so I began to see me on that book when I took the word drinking and substituted the word thinking. It's real simple. And then when it talks about the obsessive nature and other alcoholic traits, I thought, God, that's me. You know, I love people talk about the alcoholic personality. What is that? What is that? I don't know. I have the same thing. I don't know that it's an alcoholic personality. It says that, you know, it's a mental obsession of the mind. It's accompanied with irritability, restlessness, and a feeling of discontent. <laughs> Describes me pretty much, wouldn't you say about the cat? Um, you know, uh, when I was living in Newfoundland, you know, I had a lot of anger and restlessness and discontent, and I wasn't living with an alcoholic. I wasn't living with someone whose drinking bothered me. He bothered me when he wasn't drinking. Um, because I had a thing about my landlady, and I lived in an apartment. My landlady lived next door to me, you know. She's the one that I got her kids and went up the hill on those sled, you know. <laughs> but I was irritable and restless, you know. And, and uh, I, we had several little verbal altercations out there in the yard. And uh, I didn't like her, and so I decided I would punish her. Because, see, revenge was a way of life for me. And um, they did not have door-to-door -door mail delivery. And she got really mad at me, and she told my husband she wouldn't accept the rent from me. Now, that's pretty bad when you won't take money from somebody. Shows you how bad she hated me. And um, and I thought that was sort of funny. And and so my husband said, well, I'll take it next door. And I said, you will not. We'll mail it to her. And he said, but she'll have to walk two miles to the mailbox. I said, yeah. <laughs> Every time I saw her walking, I'd go, yeah. You know, make her walk for us, you know. And then one day I, I was looking around in my house, and I said, it's real drab here in the bathroom. And, and when you were living in approved housing off base, they had to do certain things for, in order to be able to rent their uh, places to the Americans. And uh, so I wanted a bathroom window. And uh, I went to the housing authority, and I got them to come out, and they, and they said, yeah, we can authorize a bathroom window. And I told her, I said, it's been authorized. They sent her a letter, and I waited, and I didn't have a bathroom window. And God, I'd waited three or four days. And when I want a window, I want a window. And uh, so I just, uh, I took a hatchet and I chopped a hole in the wall. I got a window. Uh, we went to war over a lot. See, I was constantly doing stuff, constantly doing stuff. And it, you know, that irritability, that restlessness and discontent was always focused. It was if she'd do this, if he'd do that, if they'd do this, then I could be okay. And when this didn't fix me, then I had the club. God, I love to go to the clubs because there was always laughter in the clubs. There was the, the, the drinking that was going on, and, and daily drinking became a part of my life, you know. So, you know, the solution for an alcoholic is leaving alcohol alone or abstinence. And if you don't, you go insane and die. Well, an Al-Anon has pretty much the same kind of deal. We have to learn to accept or we'll go insane and die. And if you don't think I wasn't going insane over the cats, you weren't living in my neighborhood, you know. And it just shows you you can be obsessed about anything. 
You know, and it, and it, over the years, the more I look at it, when you see alcoholics come in and get sober, what do you got? A screaming Al-Anon. That's what you got, you know. You know, it disappears to me because we're all, we all have the same problems once they're sober. Our problems are all the same. Now, an allergy is an abnormal reaction to something. Well, my allergy is uh, abnormal behavior, you know. When I'd see the alcoholic, my behavior would get weird. You know, and I could go from fear to anger to rage to revenge to murder. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a big stretch. You know, you know, I've left my car many times to go somewhere. I've gone in my car, and when I get to where I'm going, I don't even know. I don't even remember leaving home. Now, you know, that's you know, driving in a brownout. You know, and what if what if something were to happen to you among, on the way that you needed to? You weren't there. It's like where were you? I don't know. I was in my head. That's where I was. I was going around and around up here. It's like the car was on automatic pilot, you know, just going on down the road. And see, I know what allergies are all about. You know, I've got sinus allergies. I'm allergic to insect stings. My mother said that's the reason I'm so mean. I stuck my head in a wasp nest when I was a little child helping my daddy pick peaches in the backyard. And they just swarmed all over me. And I, the only thing I remember about that, I was five years old, was I remember they wouldn't let me go to sleep. And I was so tired and wanted to go to sleep, and they wouldn't let me. And the doctors had said that it was very bad if I had gone to sleep. But as a result, I'm extremely allergic to stuff like that. So, you know, and then I, I had this thing about tangerines, you know. Uh, I'm allergic to tangerines. And I didn't used to be, but you see, I abused tangerines. <laughs> You know, I always liked tangerines, and I would tell myself they're small, eat three. You know, and then you have the size of an orange. And I forget, and one, uh, one weekend I bought three dozen tangerines. And, and on Sunday night I asked J.D. what in the hell he had done with my tangerines. And he said, I hadn't touched your tangerines. I said, you have to. They're not here. He said, you've eaten. I said, I have not eaten three dozen tangerines in three days. He said, yeah, you have. Well, on Monday morning I couldn't wake up. I tried, but my eyes just wouldn't go. And they were just, I look like the fly, you know. <laughs> And so I went to the eye doctor. I couldn't figure out what had happened to me. And he said, uh, well, it looks like an allergic reaction to something. Have you done anything different? I said, no. <laughs> and I was being sincere, you know. And then he said, well, uh, have you been around anything unusual? I said, no. And he said, well, have you eaten anything different? No. And he said, well, I just can't fit. And I said, well, I did have some tangerines. And he said, well, I don't think so. I don't think tangerines would. He said, how many did you have? And I said, three. <clears throat> and uh, doesn't that sound like the alcoholic? How many drinks you had? Two, couple, you know. At least the not I could go to three. And, uh, and he said, three tangerines wouldn't do that. And I said, well, three dozen. And he said, what? And I said, well, three dozen. He said, three dozen tangerines? God, when he said it, it sounded so bad, you know. You know, if you just don't hear it like that, you know. And he said, yeah, that'd probably do it. And so to this day, when I buy tangerines, I go to the store and I buy one tangerine. Because I know if I buy six, I'll eat six. If I buy a dozen, I'll eat a dozen. It's like the alcohol. Once I take the peeling off, it's till it's gone. I mean, there it is, you know. And I never could understand why J.D. would throw the, the cap on the bottle away. You see, I wasn't relating to the obsession, the need to go ahead and to do. You know, and even though I knew it would swell my eyes shut, I'd go ahead and I would eat the tangerines. And that's that insanity. The insanity of alcoholism doing the same things over and over and over and expecting different results, you know. And so the, what I would do also is I would go over and over to person to person wanting to be loved. 
And when Bill shares in his stories his feelings of loneliness and his need for excitement, need to feel important, God, I could relate to Bill, you know. You know, and then the thing of it is, I'd do the things I'd do, and then I'd look, I can remember getting up in the morning and looking in the mirror and going, God, I don't, I got to where I couldn't look in the mirror anymore. You'd put your makeup on, but you couldn't look in the mirror. And one of the things I was told to do when I came in the program was do mirror talk. And I said, what's that? And they said, talk to yourself in the mirror. I couldn't do that. I couldn't look at me in the mirror. See, when I looked in the mirror, I got sick about what I saw. I saw all of that stuff that I had done. And those eyes were dead. There wasn't any light on in those eyes. And I just didn't want to do it. It took me a long time to go ahead and to do what my sponsor said. I'd go over there and I'd look in the mirror and I'd do those things. But it took a long time before that feeling of unworthiness and that self-loathing went away when I'd look in the mirror. But I had a lot of hope in Bill's story. You know, and he said, There was scarcely any form of trouble or misery which has not been overcome among us. My God, you know, talk about promises on 83 and 84. There's a big promise. The thing that there's not anything that's happening out there that we can't go through together. That was a big promise to me. And, uh, you know, no matter what you're going to do, like Benoit and I were talking earlier, life happens. And sometimes, you know, it's just like in 1995, I had a horrible year. And I was depressed pretty much that whole year. And people would say, well, no, you've got a pro." Hell yes, if I hadn't had a program, I would have blown my brains out for God's sake. You know, but the bottom line is you still got to go and you still got to feel the feelings, but you don't have to do it alone and there's people there to walk with you through it. And sometimes the kindest thing you can do when somebody's doing that is just be there and just love them. Just love them because they're going to have to do what they got to do. You know, they're going to have to hurt and suffer with it as long as they have to hurt and suffer with it. And grief's like that. And it was like I, had, I lost nine friends that year. And it's like, how do you just go from person to person? And my sister nearly died on me. And then the, the horror of that, you know. So, I mean, it was, uh, it was bad, you know. And the, the worst things that's ever happened to us have happened since sobriety, since we've been in the program. You just think they're bad before you get here. You know, because J.D.'s mom died right after we were here. And, and then I had the ordeal all those years with my mother and the, the horror of her, her death. And then my sister's heart disease. And her diabetes is still a problem because she still will not accept. She's in total denial about her diabetes. And we've had problems with finances. We, we, we're having problems now getting old and accepting the limitations, you know. You can't do what you used to could do in the same amount of time. You know, you just can't do it. You can't think like you used to think. You can't remember uh, people's name. You see a face and you go, God, what is the name? You know, and it's like used to you didn't have that problem. But now you begin to have that problem and you have to accept and learn to roll with that. And I'm in here with other senile people, so it's okay. <laughs> you know, in a solution it talks about there, there are people who wouldn't normally mix. And God, isn't that the truth? You know, I wouldn't be caught dead with some of y'all before. <laughs> I remember one time I was in Palm Springs, and I was sitting there in my room, and there was these two people from uh, from Denmark that were sitting there. And there was a, a girl and a guy from Sweden. And then there was this girl, Mexican girl. And then there was this Chinese girl married to a black man. And we were all sitting there eating salsa and telling dirty jokes. And I thought, this is life. This is fun. You know, these are the fun things. You know, I mean, you, you just, you know, it's a common problem. It's a common solution, you know. And it tells you in the book that sobriety is only a beginning. You know, it's not the goal. It's just the starting point. And, it, and his sobriety it belongs to him. I don't have anything to do with it. And see, for a long time I thought that if I went to Al-Anon, I could help keep him sober. That Al-Anon was going to give me the formula that I could help keep him sober. And, you know, you keep listening for it and you don't hear it, you know. 
And uh, I found that his sobriety belongs to him. I can't take credit for his sobriety. And guess what? I don't have to take credit for the drunk either, you know. That's the thing. I'm not responsible, you know. I can't cause it. I can't control it. I can't cure it. You know, and alcoholics have three C's too. You know that? Con them, confuse them, and conquer. You know, I learned that a long time ago. But the problem is in our mind. It's in our mind. And we don't know why we do the things we do. How many times have you told yourself, I'm not going to do that, only to find yourself doing it? And so there's something that's missing the gap up here, you know? And the book talks about stinking thinking, you know. And I'm familiar with that, that this time it's going to be different. Now, in 1985, I quit smoking. And I can't tell you the number of times the thought has crossed my mind, boy, wouldn't a cigarette taste good after this meal? Yes, it would. I know it would. But I know there's no way to take one cigarette, you know. And that's where the program comes. Every time my mind says, this time it'll be different, it's like bells go off. And you go, I've heard that before. That's insanity. And now I'm aware when I'm having the insane thoughts, you know. There it is. This time it's going to be different. It's not going to be any different, you know. But I identified, too, with the jaywalker. I love that chap part in the book where it talks about the jaywalker. Good God. You know, how many times I've done that one? I've done it with men, credit cards, relationships, finances. You know, jaywalking is just, I mean, that's just a really good illustration. But I've done it. You know, it's like that story of going down the street and you fall in a hole. And you get all banged up, you know, and you get out and you go the next day and you go down the same street. And you fall in the hole. And you get out and you think, well, God, there's a hole in this street. So the next day you're going, you're looking, you see the hole and you step around the hole. There comes a day when you have enough sense to go down a different street. You know, it just takes a while. It just takes a while. But that's what that reminded me of, the story of the jaywalker. Now, in order to come overcome that thinking, it says that you have to have a spiritual experience that will be sufficient to give you some sane thinking, you know, and where that God's doing for you what you couldn't do for yourself. You know, and there's times I have no mental defense against thinking, thinking, you know. My defense must come from a higher power. Because, you know, I've learned, if anything, that the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go in alone. <laughs> and at home, we tell you, if your thinking's broken, try not to use it so much. You know, that's the thing, you know, that no mental defense against the crazy thoughts. Because there's hardly a day goes by that I don't identify a crazy thought. And God knows how many goes by that I just, just miss that they're crazy. But the exact directions for recovery are given in the book, not a theory. It says precisely and specifically. I mean, it has really powerful words. And it challenges you. And if you don't think you need the program, go out there and try some controlled drinking or go out there and see what results you get, you know. And I'm real grateful for the people in our group that have gone out. We call them retreads, those that come back the second time. I'm real grateful because, you know, they look so bad, and I think they're doing it so I don't have to. Because when I see how bad they look, I know it ain't any better out there. It's not any better than it was out there when I came in. So I know I don't want to do that anymore. But you have to learn the proper use of your will, and that is to turn things over. That's the proper use of your will. I learned that in the book. I didn't realize there was a difference between being religious and spiritual. I didn't know that until I read the chapter on we agnostics. You know, I didn't know I was an agnostic until I read it. I don't think I had ever even heard the term. I just didn't think I believed in God, but I believed there was a God, you know. And I didn't understand the God I had. I don't know who understood the God I had. Uh, and it isn't important, you know. But it's not really so important that I understand God as that I know that God understands me. And that's what I, I've learned there. 
And I have to be willing to start the process, no matter how small. No matter, you know, you've got to start somewhere. You've got to have some little place. And the book assures me that whenever I, the moment I begin to believe, or am even willing to believe, that I'm on my way. That's very encouraging to me. Very encouraging. Do I, and do I believe or am I willing to believe in a power greater than myself was the question. And, you know, for a long time I felt that if you don't ask God for anything, then God may be there. But if you ask and He doesn't do it, that means He's not there for you. So I wouldn't ask. It took me a long time to be able, to be able to ask God and to identify and know that I was asking God. And that's the reason I told Him, you know, hey, this is Mary Pearl at 409 Healy Street. I just didn't want him confusing me with anybody else, you know. I wanted to know that God was going to do something for me, that he was going to be there and going to take care of me. And you know, it says, care of God. That means God cares. God cares for you. And I didn't have much faith that God would work because I had this real spirit of unworthiness. You know, I had done a lot of not good things. I had done a lot of bad things. In fact, I had pretty much broken every one of my own belief systems, you know. I had gone systematically down through my belief system, what I believed in, and had just zip, 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 crossed them off. I had done everything I said I wouldn't do, you know. I haven't been to Australia yet, Joe, friend, <laughs> for those of you who heard me before. Um, but I didn't have faith that God would work in my life, but I've learned that faith is a strange thing. It's like having a muscle. And a muscle uh, may be flabby and soft and what have you, but when you begin to use it just a little bit, it begins to tighten up and it begins to firm up. And then if you use it long enough and consistently enough, it becomes very strong. And that's the way that faith had worked for me. Now, I heard people share in rooms like this over and over what God did for them, what they couldn't do for themselves. And as I became willing to believe that God would do with that, He continues to do those things for me too. You know, it's not like He'll do it for us and He won't do it for you. He'll do it for anybody that believes and asks Him to do it, you know. And when my, uh, my awareness of God today is the most powerful reason I have for even having faith. You see, I've seen results. I know it works. Faith works. And either God is or He isn't. You know, it's pretty simple. God's everything or He's nothing. And it tells us in the book that some grow spiritually slowly and others faster. And I was glad to hear that too. Because, you know, after hearing about Bill's experience, which was instantaneous, you know, I thought, God, I didn't have that, you know. Mine was more a daily, gradual awareness as things come on, and always sort of in retrospect. You know, things happen, and then you look back and say, Oh, yeah, I remember now that happened, and this was what was going on. But it says, the main thing is that God comes to all who seek Him. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement. To me, that's another promise right there. I really, really was glad about that. Now, the book talks about types of drinkers. I always get amused at those. Because in Elna, we have types of thinkers. It says there's the moderate one. And, and to me, that's the person who can accept life on life's terms pretty well. The person who's not too deranged. And then we have the hard thinker, that person who studies a lot, that can modify their behavior, even if difficult sometimes. But then there's the real Al-Anon. And that's the one who's lost control over his thinking and does incredibly tragic things trying to control other people. He's irritable, restless, discontent, and fearful. And that described me. That described me. Uh, my main problem was me, you know. All my life I talked about the hypocrites in the church. You know, the people said, we love you and then don't come in. And, you know, we want to help you save your soul but don't wear pants. Uh, I had, you know, I said, these are hypocrites, you know, but yet I was a hypocrite. I just did it in different ways, you know. 
I, 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 I do it in things like, you know, we hate our defects when we see them in other people. And that's the reason I hated that so much. Because I'd say one thing and do another too. That was exactly, you know, uh, <laughs> but I had to find that God was working for me in a way and he'd have to do impossible things for me in order for me to see it. Because anything that I could justify or rationalize wasn't God, you know. And so I would be in there, and that was the reason when I got paid that check when there wasn't any money coming in, and uh, J.D. having money in his pants pocket that time when we were wanting to go to a convention, just the $30 that we needed appeared in his pants pocket, you know, the $35. And uh, God continues to work like that in my life. You know, those miracles, those things that happen, they're impossible to explain in any other way. Now, either I'm having a spiritual experience, a hot flash, or the air conditioning has gone. <laughs> now, I shared with y'all a few, uh, about six or seven years ago, how I got a computer. And I told you that I, uh, I thought I needed a computer. People told me I needed a computer, but I was afraid I couldn't learn how to use a computer. And so, but anyway, I took an action. I started a computer fund, and in about four months, I had $30. (laughs) It's a start! (laughs) Anyway, I went over to this girl uh, that I was sponsoring. Her uh, boyfriend uh, was an attorney, and we went over to their house, and uh, he gave me a a computer that year for Christmas. Um, He was an old one. He was putting a new one in his office, so he gave me his old computer, and and I said, is it IBM compatible? See, I knew some of the words, and he said, it's an IBM. I said, oh. (laughs) See, that throws you, you know. (laughs) Is an IBM compatible? (laughs) You know. Well, I used that computer all these years, and uh, finally, you know, the the memory just went, it was like mine, it just filled up. And uh, they couldn't do anything. It was just a little 286, but God, I loved it, and I was scared to death, and I'm saying, I need something bigger and better. And then I'd hear all these terms, and I just didn't have a clue what people were talking about. Rim, rom, ram, whatever. You know, and um, basically I had a word processor is what I was using it for, and I didn't even realize about all the stuff that was out there because mine didn't have enough memory to put anything on, so it wasn't anything to worry about. And I told J.D., though, I said, I'd really like to be able to do some more things. And so we, we talked about it, and we prayed about it, and I went shopping. And I went looking. Now, if you really want to get confused, you go to one of these two or three computer stores, you know, and they'll have this one is the same. And, oh, wait, but you got to have this one over here, and this one has this. And, 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 you know, this one stands up and waves at you, and this one talks to you. And, and uh, oh, my God. Now, and, and do you want this one, or do you want a PC, or do you want an apple? And apple's a fruit. What, what are you doing, you know? And uh, so finally I sat down and I prayed about it and I told J.D., I said, I think this is the one I want. And uh, he said, well, go get it then and, and we'll get it for you for Christmas. And I said, well, gosh, that's an awful lot of money. I said, J.D., that's over $3,000, you know, to get this one because, I mean, it, this one is really nifty. And I said, it's like a, a 4X and it's whatever. And he's going, yeah, yeah. Because, see, J.D. knows less than I do, which is, you know, the blind leading the blind at our house. Anyway, uh, I said, okay, this is the decision. And so I said, this is what I'm going to do tomorrow. Fifteen minutes later, the telephone rang. Fifteen minutes. And this man said, um, hello, this is Santa Claus. <laughs> now, I have a lot of weird friends, you know. And I'm thinking, this is a joke. And I said, is this a joke? And he said, no. And he said, I live uh, up in the north. And I said, you do? He said, yeah, I live in uh, South Dakota. 
And I said, oh, you do? And he said, yeah, I live at Gateway. <laughs> and I said, so? And he said, well, a bunch of the elves have gotten together and decide that you need a computer that will last you for a lifetime, and so we're building you one, and we're going to send it to you. And I said, who? And he said, uh, they told me to say they prefer to remain anonymous. And I said, you're kidding. He said, no, it won't be there in time for Christmas. But he said, it'll be there after the first of the year. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And he said, and they're throwing in a color printer too. Now, this was better than what I was going to buy, you know. And when I got it, you know, it was a 12X CD-ROM. And, uh, you know, it had all this fantastic amounts of memory and stuff that went with it. And, and, and I'm going, my God, how will I ever, ever get it put together? You know, I mean, I don't know anything about this kind of stuff. And this girl that used to work in computers had come over and put my other one together, and she doesn't even go with Al-Anon anymore. You know. <laughs> how dare she quit when I was going to need her? And uh, one of the gentlemen that I sponsor owns a big company, and he said he was sending over the head of his computer department, and he did, and he put it together and showed me how to use my computer. And it does everything but walk. It does walk and talk. I mean, I'm here to tell you. And I've learned more in the last six months than I knew in the past seven years. And, you know, and it has really, it has really been a help to me. And it's, if you want to understand powerlessness, get you a computer. I mean, it tells you stuff. You, I mean, you find yourself talking to a screen. I swear to God, you do. It puts up little messages, and you go, well, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> You've made a fatal error. Well, good for me. <laughs> We're going to shut you down. Well, go right ahead. <laughs> well, now what do you do? It's locked. You know, I mean, it's like I never had that problem with the other one. And I told the little guy, and he said, well, he said, the other one didn't do anything. And he says, now that you got one that does everything, it screws up frequently. He says, that's the nature of them. He said, they're, they're just made to drive you crazy. I said, well, I'm there. <laughs> but, you know, that's another thing, though. See, that's God doing for me. Because, you see, God knew something I didn't know. He, didn't, I, he, he knew that I was going to need a new washer and dryer and refrigerator in the next few weeks. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I would went ahead and bought that computer. It would have been just too much. So you see, God goes ahead and he plans in love. At least my God does. And But there's more than just things, you know. I begin to trust. I could be calm in an emergency. I could be sane and courteous to people on the road. That was a big deal. You know, I'm a crazy person on the road. And I could trust God with my finances. I could trust God with my loved ones. I could trust God with my own life. And that was a big change for me. And as I would listen to other people share about their higher power, it gave me hope and willingness to try to turn more over and more over and more over. And so today I believe that there is a God. And if there isn't, what have I lost? But if I don't believe and there is, I've lost everything. And I'm not that kind of gambler. Why take that kind of chance? And I learned that God lives in all side of, inside of everybody. You know, he's our inner resource. And we come with God already installed. He's not something that you have to add on, you know. I, I thought for a while that that's the way God was, you know, that there was a plug out.